Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder at the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Philip Siegel. Uh, Philip is a lawyer and he is the founder of Charles Griffin Intelligence. But really what Philip is, is a private investigator. Welcome, Philip Siegel, to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So tell us what a private investigator does, because, you know, I am a huge mystery fan, and I know V.I. Warshawski, Philip Marlowe, Kinsey Milhone, but I'm guessing that what you do day to day isn't like that. No, it's not really like that. I, I am really a lawyer who just does fact-finding for people, and uh, I don't call myself a private investigator because people think that that tends to mean following other people around and sneaking up behind them and figuring out where they're going. And um, private investigators in fiction get shot at a lot, guns, <laughs> and, and I don't do any of that that stuff. I do what lawyers are not trained to do in law school. Lawyers are not trained to gather facts, and that's what I gather. My background is a journalist, and what we do is we get the story on a person. Uh, before we run around and look at them, before we ever talk to them, if we even have permission to talk to them, or anyone else who knows them or who used to know them, we do research on them. We try and turn over every piece of paper we can in the public domain on those people. And whether in divorce, it means usually we, we're called on to try and help find assets but in other areas that we work in, we find witnesses, we figure out if someone is who he says he is before he receives money from an investor. We work for investors. We always try and find what is a person's story, what's the resume versus what they say it is. And uh, when you're looking at assets, it's the same kind of exercise. What companies do they have? Where do they live? Who owns the building they live in? Uh, who owns the place they rent? Is it really their place? Do they have businesses that they don't tell you about? That's the kind of thing that we do. And, you know, that's really interesting because a lot of times people come into my office and they wonder, how can I trust my spouse that, you know, he or she uh, is telling the truth, you know, you know, and we say, well, you know, we're going to get this information or maybe we're going to have a forensic accountant, you know, we're going to sign a statement of net worth, blah, 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 you know, a bunch of gobbledygook, you know, but really, how do they know? And it sounds like that's what, what you really are investigating, really doing as much research as you possibly can to verify what people are saying or what they're showing or saying who they are. Is that right? That's right. And the the main thing that we uh, find when we're or we're asked to find when there's an asset search is what is there that they're not telling us about uh, on one of those net worth statements, a spouse who has a business that isn't doing very well will happily show you that. But what they might not show you is another business or an affiliate of, of that business that maybe reports separate results that is doing well. And so I've seen uh, I have a woman come in and say, 
I filed jointly with my husband or our taxes. And so the accountant of my husband's business gave me these accounts for 30 companies and they weren't doing very well. And I went away and did some work and I said, you've got 30 other companies that they didn't tell you about. And so when you have a forensic accountant looking at all the books and records to try and see if any money is missing, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do that until you know you're, or you're pretty sure that you have all of the relevant records in front of you to look at. Because if there's a lot of money being made in some company that the forensic accountant's not looking at, they won't be able to tell you that you're missing some money, uh, or they may not be able to tell you. So we always try and tell people, if you're thinking about a forensic accountant to make sense of dozens of different bank statements and financial statements and other documents, it might make sense for us just to take a quick look and see if you have a full organization chart of everything that the person has. And it's not as expensive as using a private uh, a forensic accountant, but we can often say, hey, we just found a couple of this thing and that thing and this building and this he just bought a house last week. Uh, he has these five businesses you didn't know about. And that in and of itself sometimes can get you to a better bargaining position in, in a divorce because they know uh, they're going to find out so, you know, they found it or they're, they're going to the more we hide, the more they're going to pursue and, and find out. So sometimes you don't have to find every last penny and every last company, but you do find something and that can lead to a quicker resolution. And Philip Siegel, I wonder, maybe this is a naive question, but if people have businesses, wouldn't they somehow be reflected on the tax return or is that not necessarily true? It's not necessarily true if the business is not a pass-through business, if it's a if it's a corporation or if it's an LLC that's taxed as a corporation and not as a partnership, it would file its own tax return. And if that business didn't pay a dividend to the owner, then uh, it wouldn't be reflected on the owner's uh, on the owner's tax return. Uh, if I have an investment in a company that makes no money, you know, on the stock market and it doesn't pay me any dividends. There's no way someone looking at my tax return can tell I have an investment in that company. So what people can sometimes do is keep the profitable companies aside, pay the dividends to yet another company that they may own, pay the dividends to someone who's going to hold them for them, or not pay dividends, and only pay the dividends out after the divorce is final. Uh, those are some of the strategies that you can use in, uh, in concealing assets. And, you know, something that sometimes people worry about is, you know, this sort of Swiss bank account. I mean, I think an offshore, you know, untraceable account. And is there a way for you to identify whether or not that is happening? There's a way to identify whether it's happening, but sometimes it's very difficult to find out where the money is now. You can see records that maybe eight years ago, some money went overseas, but then to try and figure out where it spent the last eight years can be difficult. So what we often recommend is that when you're doing a search, you first search onshore because you can find, sometimes you can find uh, indicators of offshore wealth in an onshore relationship. If, uh, for example, if someone pays a school fee, a private school fee, and that comes from a, a bank account in Bermuda, you think, okay, there, there are some offshore assets. But it's very time-consuming and expensive to go after an offshore account. And so I always tell people, unless you have serious, really serious money at stake, it's probably not going to be worth it. Because to go to court 
in the British Virgin Islands with the Queen's Council to, to seek turnover orders and so forth, it can be really expensive. Uh, so if someone, if you think someone's got fifty thousand dollars stashed in in Liechtenstein or something, it's, it's probably not going to be worth trying to go get it. On the other hand, if if you're talking about much more money, then it may be worth trying to do that. But you'll often get a sense of of something being offshore when you're looking here first. And that's much, much cheaper to do. So we always say start there. Yeah, I think you're saying that there's evidence of offshore accounts in the onshore dealings because you see the transfers out and in. That's right. Although when you're talking about seeing the transfers, you have to be careful not to assume that you can immediately get all the bank accounts that you're going to want to get. Uh, Sometimes people come in to me and they say, I'm thinking of getting divorced and I need to see his bank accounts. And you can't do it that early. We don't have bank secrecy like some countries, like some offshore tax havens and and banking havens, but there is a a degree of bank secrecy in the United States. You need a court order or a a subpoena to go find uh, someone's bank records and get them sent to you. Uh, There are people running around who will claim to be able to do that without court intervention, and that's not legal. The fact that people do it is, uh, is one thing, but it's another question entirely. Do you feel like breaking the law to get those documents. So but once you do you get the, the the bank statements, yes, then then of course yes, you can see sometimes uh, indications. Oh, I have two questions in my mind, but I'm going to ask the first one that came to mind first, which is why would anyone even bother with an offshore account with fifty thousand dollars just because they have one? It may have had more before, and now it's down to fifty thousand dollars. You may think that they're hiding. Sometimes people say, I, I think there's about 50,000 missing. Maybe they have it offshore. And I say, you're, well, you're right. If, if it's that little, then they, they, might not, they might not bother. But if they happen to have bothered, or if they're from a different country, and that was their first bank account, if they're from Cyprus, and now they live here, they might still have an account in Cyprus. And sure. Maybe that's what's there. That makes a lot of sense. You know. But it, but it doesn't. It's true. It, it, you know, if you were an American and you went to all the trouble of setting it all up just to put fifty grand in there, that that doesn't make a lot of sense. But people, people sometimes are very emotional, as you know, in, in divorce, and the, and the last five thousand dollars is is extremely important to them. And I, I always say that the the divorcing clients are much more emotionally invested in ten or twenty thousand dollars than a big company that might be my client is. In a million dollars, because it's really it's the company's money, but it's really the shareholders' money, and it's not emotional the same way in corporate fights as it is in in personal fights, as as of course you know. Yeah, it's never about the money. I mean, when the people have money, when they're arguing about money, it usually is about a symbol for something else. The way money, you know, just cash is a symbol for value, right. and and so it's you know from a rational, I guess, point of view, it doesn't always make sense why they're arguing over, you know, this thing when this other thing was worth so much more, but it's because of the, of the symbolism and what it means. I think that's, that's absolutely right. And so I often tell people that, you, you know, you're not going to get the, la- the very last penny. If, the, if, if you think their assets being hidden, it's not going to be worth it to go get the very last penny. If you can get a decent amount of what you think is being withheld, and if you think it's financially worthwhile for you to go do that, if it's worth it for you to spend ten or twenty thousand dollars to track down an extra twenty or fifty thousand dollars, okay, and and wait, and with all the stress and waiting and, and the the lack of resolution, okay. 
But sometimes if you get enough and you found some of it and you can then live comfortably, uh, then, you know, sometimes people want to move on. Of course, if you if you say I don't have enough money to keep my house, to put my kids through school and I need more money, that's a different proposition. But sometimes it's not a matter of comfort. It's a matter of equity. A woman will say, I built that business with him and it's now worth $4 million. And why should I let a million dollars go by? Even if she's comfortably off now, she might want an extra half million. And it's up to her to, to say, I want to go find it. And, and we try our best. Yeah. I'm Catherine Miller. This is Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30. And we're also available as a podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And all episodes are also on the podcast website, which is www.divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Philip Siegel, who is the founder at Charles Griffin Intelligence. And we're looking, we're talking about investigation and finding financial information about people. And Phil, who is, who are the typical people who hire Charles Griffin and hire you in a matrimonial context? Oftentimes it's, it's the client, mostly women who are chasing men that they suspect are hiding uh, assets, although I've had same-sex couples and I've had men hire me about their wives and what their wives might have. But most, most of the time, it's women who are seeking assets held, they think, by, by men that they are thinking of divorcing or that they are in the middle of a divorce with. Uh, and it comes in, all, it comes in various stages. Uh, occasionally, someone comes after divorce and says, I, I think I was taken. Uh, some women come in forum shopping, trying to get a case heard in New York rather than some unfavorable jurisdiction overseas, and they want to know under the New York laws, you know, what what they could get. And I I advise them that I'm not a divorce lawyer, and I just try and look for for what they might have, what the husband might have. And I usually tell them that it's better to have their lawyer hire me for privilege purposes because everything I write, uh, and if I send that to the to the so let's say in this case the wife, the husband could then get my report in discovery and see what I found. And I had one I had one case where actually it was the man who hired me investigating his wife and even though he was a lawyer, he didn't want to spend the extra money having me hired through his divorce lawyer. So he hired me himself and he wrote me a personal check out of his account and not surprisingly I got a subpoena a few months later from his soon-to-be ex-wife who noticed an outlay to me, <laughs> and, and they subpoenaed what I found. And so they had to spend all this money trying to quash the subpoena, which they eventually did, and they negotiated some way around that. But um, it, it that wouldn't have been necessitated if he had gotten his divorce lawyer to write me the check. And then the only thing to preserve the privilege, which is the client's privilege of, of confidentiality is that the lawyer should be on every email that I send to the client. If a, if the client wants to get my emails, then as long as I copy the lawyer on the phone, uh, the lawyer should be on the phone if I'm on the phone with the with the client. And So I and think then, what you're saying is, I mean, just in, for our listeners who might be thinking, well, that just sounds like a lot of legal gobbledygook to me. I think what you're saying is that it's really important when you get hired in the context of a divorce that what you find out is kept confidential so that the client and the lawyer and her lawyer have the opportunity to use it or not use it at their discretion in the best possible way and that there are things that you need to do in order to preserve that control. That's right. And it's not hard to do it as long as the lawyer 
hires me to work for the lawyer for the interest of the client, then you're probably going to be okay. Uh, and so as long as you – if you email me, uh, if the lawyer has hired me and then you are the client and you want to know something from me by email, copy the lawyer. Just, just CC the lawyer. You should be okay. And then if they do find out I'm around, they can't find out what I found because, of course, if they get their hands on what I find, the money can vanish. They can move things around. Right. Uh, and it's the same thing and the same warning applies when people say, how do you work? And maybe you want to get to this a little later. But when we do our work, we try not to call anyone on the phone until we've done all of our research first. And the reason for that, well, there are two reasons. Number one, you're going to do a much more informed interview about husband X if you have done all your research about him ahead of time. If, if you didn't know that he had some secret company in Nevada that no one ever heard about, uh, it would be pretty hard to ask people about it on the phone if you didn't know about it yourself. So that's one reason you, you want to do – they call it doing your homework before you go out and call people. And the other reason that you that you want to be very careful about who you call and decide if you want to call them at all is that uh, sometimes your phone call to the person who is a former colleague of the ex-husband, say, or the, 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 the husband in the divorce, could tell the husband, hey, I got a call from an investigator asking all about you. And it could get back to the husband. And so you usually don't want that to happen. Once in a while, if it's if you want to play hardball and you want the husband to know you're, you're looking at him, you can call the person who will certainly call him and tell him. Uh, but even even if you call someone who is his sworn enemy, who was his litigation opponent for years, and they hate each other and they had a long legal feud, it could still leak back because they have mutual friends possibly. They belong to the same golf club, whatever it is. Uh, so you have to be careful when you're calling people and, and you have to know that there's a risk that you will uh, – that your investigation will come up to the surface and, and become known. And that's something that, that we tell the client to evaluate with their lawyer before they unleash us to go phoning people. But some investigators you know, want to pick up the phone on the first day, and, and I think that's almost always a mistake. So what is your process, Philip Siegel, in terms of investigating? What do you do? What is the homework that you're doing? We're turning over. We take a, a clean look at the person, and we get as much background as we can on him so that we don't spend time finding things the client already knows. We ask the client to fill out a long questionnaire, and that's every company you know that he has, every address you know that he's had, all his past phone numbers, uh, employers, colleagues. What might he name a secret company? Where, where you know, would it be after a, the street he grew up on? Would it be after a pet he had when he was young? Because that's a lot of times when you ask someone, why did you name your hedge fund Elmwood Capital? They'll say, because I grew up on Elmwood Avenue in Maplewood, New Jersey, or something like that. And people are not that creative about how they name things. And the wife, the wife's hiring me, knows much more than she thinks she does about some clues to where the assets would be. And we take all that information, and then we do a completely fresh search on the person. And we look at everything we can find uh, on the public record. That's with databases, news clips, Court records are very, very important because sometimes if the guy has a company we didn't know about, his partner and he have a fight in this secret company, the partner leaves, sues the guy and the secret company, and we find out about this lawsuit because we're searching on his name. 
if we don't know about Elmwood Capital, how could we? Why would we do a search on it? But if we know his name and he is sued along with Elmwood Capital, we look at the case and we say, ah, here's a here's a company he had called Elmwood Capital. Let's find out if he sold it, how much he got it, he sold it for, or does he still own it? And maybe we want to talk to the people who he used to work with. And that's the, so you you do a a very thorough look at the public record and databases, licenses, securities records, regulatory records, if he's in construction, building permits to see if he got a building permit under another name in addition to the company name you know about. And we put that all together into a big memo, uh, and it's often delivered in in chronological order. And we say, here's what we think he's got. And uh, here are a bunch of companies that we didn't even know about. And do you know about these? Because sometimes even if they're not on the questionnaire, the wife will say, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, he, he did have that. Right. But he sold it or something. But we then present the client with a memo that says, here's everything we found. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes there's enough to say, oh, you know, he, he sold one guy who I once – it wasn't a divorce case, but it was a litigation. And he'd put down he was worth $4 million in his net worth statement, and we found he had sold a building for $50 million the previous week in wow. New Jersey, in Newark. Uh, you know, so there, there was lots to find. He had admitted all kinds of, he had omitted all kinds of, he had 30% ownership in about 15 different shopping centers all over the country, but 30% ownership. And we found those, and that was that was effective. And, and, we, and so then we'll say in our memo, we could call all these people if you want, and it could be in this order, the order that they're less likely to, from less to more likely that they'll spill the beans and tell him that we're calling about him. Or maybe you don't want us to do that. Maybe you, maybe you want to just take this information and negotiate with it. Or maybe you want to send some subpoenas out for some records of companies that he didn't disclose on his net worth statement. But here are the public records that say he owns these companies. And well, let me just let me interrupt you there yeah. to remind people that they're listening to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller, and we're here on WVOX every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast on the usual podcast channels, as well as the website for the podcast, which is divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Philip Siegel. And Phil, I want to make sure that people who are listening who might be interested in finding out more about your services know how to reach you and what your contact information is. So can you lay that out for them? Sure. Uh, the name is Philip Siegel, S-E-G-A-L. And the name of the company is Charles Griffin Intelligence. And it's very easy to find on the web. Uh, the phone number is 212-332-2845, which you can find with a Google search, just searching Charles Griffin Intelligence. We have a, a website with all kinds of information. We keep a divorce blog called The Divorce Asset Hunter, as well as another blog called The Ethical Investigator with all kinds of investigative tips and articles about how we look at what we do. Well, I've written extensively over the years for American Bar Association and other places about tips for investigating, tips for hiring investigators, five questions to ask an investigator if before you hire him. And I've gone over a few of those points in this interview. Um, but we're, we're in New York and we're findable and the consultation is free. That's great information. And, you know, I'm wondering, we have about three minutes left. Who should think about hiring in you and who really shouldn't? The people who should hire us are people who, who perhaps don't trust that they're being given all the information that's out there. 
you know, if they've stopped trusting their spouse, it's one thing if you trust your spouse, but you just say, we just don't want to be married any longer. That That's one thing. And that's, you'd hope that that would be the way most people would go. But if, if, if a spouse discovers a strange company in the accounts at home and there's no good explanation for it or some other piece of information that, that would indicate that there's much more money that they can't account for, uh, it doesn't cost that much to take a look. And if we don't call anybody, the spouse we look at won't know that we're looking because we're just pulling out public records and looking at court cases and databases. And so for a few thousand dollars, you can get some peace of mind that, yes, it seems as if there's really nothing else that this person has. And sometimes, But sometimes, without very much looking, you can pull up all kinds of information that uh, a spouse didn't know about, about the other spouse. And so if you don't trust, it doesn't cost that much to, to take a, a quiet look and before you have a forensic accountant going over demanding books and records. We don't go and do an intrusive look like that. We, we buzz around so that no one can tell. But, but we're not getting anything we're not entitled to get. It's just public records. Okay. And very quickly, just in our last few seconds, who should not hire you? Uh, someone who's uh, thinking about maybe they, they are missing $5,000 or $4,000 or someone who only wants to get the bank accounts tomorrow and hasn't, and hasn't started suing yet. I'm not going to go get bank accounts illegally, and it won't be worth it to you if, if you're only looking for five or $6,000. Yeah, and we haven't spoken much about this, but you have mentioned it a few times. Someone who wants to do something illegal, that's not what you do. That is not what we do. I've written extensively about that. I say if you... Well, we're pretty much out of time, but I just wanted to be really clear about that. So, Philip Siegel, thank you so much for being our guest on Divorce Dialogues. I really appreciate it. Thank you.